Welcome to Get World Savvy. This is a business and tech podcast on startup ecosystems around the world, the entrepreneurs innovating in global markets and predicting opportunities of the future. On Get World Savvy, we have fascinating conversations with some of the top leaders, disruptors, and creators in tech and tech-enabled businesses across industries and geographies. You'll learn about where the world is moving, growth strategies, and how that translates to your business and home market. I am your host, Ivy Shu. I previously worked in Silicon Valley and spent all of 2019 traveling to 16 emerging markets to interview tech leaders and to expand my playbook on building successful companies. I have no intention of stopping this journey and I can't wait to share all my learnings with you on this podcast. You can join the listener community based in over five continents and working in over 20 industries by going to getworldsavvy.com slash podcast. We hold weekly trainings on tangible skills that will help you scale your business and up-level your career, like digital marketing, how to partner with tech giants, moving from product management to entrepreneurship and back to product management, and developing web accessibility for your website for users with disabilities, just to name the trainings that are happening in May. You'll also get to connect and network with over 100 global leaders in tech. Welcome to episode 16. Today we are here with Tamar Sabri, the co-founder of Wasla Browser based in Cairo, Egypt. Wasla Browser is a gamified mobile browser that rewards users with free mobile internet. They are on a mission to connect the next 500 million people in emerging markets to subsidize mobile internet while fostering digital and financial inclusion. I met Tamer in Egypt when I was traveling because we are both subscribers to the information. I reached out and Tamer hosted myself and my fiance at one of several restaurants that he also owns in Cairo, where I honestly had the best Beyond Meat burger ever amongst almost everything on the menu. Tamer is one of the many Egyptians who went to study abroad, worked in the UAE, and came back home to Egypt to start a company after seeing the growth and potential of the Egyptian market. Thanks for being here with me today, Tamer. It's a pleasure. <laughs> it's a pleasure. So let's always start with, tell me about yourself, your experiences, and what problems that you saw in Egypt's market that led you to create Wasla Browser. Definitely. Um, so first, let me just introduce myself. I'm uh, the co-founder and CPO at uh, Wasla Browser. And before uh, launching Wasla, I actually worked um, in a few different locations. I graduated from University of San Diego a few years back, after which I went to Dubai, with, where I joined a few tech startups over there. Collectively, the startups that I actually joined um, raised around um, $50 million. And then after a few, uh, a few years there, I was then uh, approached by Rocket Internet, which is a major German uh, internet company that owns a lot of the food delivery platforms around the world. And they basically chose me and one of my, and my co-founders to launch a European food delivery company in Dubai. So we launched that. And within nine months, we ended up collaborating or merging with the regional player Talabot, which is also owned by Rocket Internet. So we grew very fast in a very short time. And we ended up, you know, a sister assist company, basically. This is when I decided to venture my own. So uh, I did a few, a few projects and then we ended up working on Wasla. Now, the reason why we actually decided to develop Wasla was very interesting. When I moved back to Egypt, I realized that internet connectivity is, was extremely, extremely poor. 
and as we speak right now, actually the the internet could cut. So it's. Uh, I'm just praying right now. Praying internally that this doesn't hopefully cut out. Won't, hopefully won't. So uh, we were thinking about internet and the effect it has on the community, and then when we were, you know, digging deeper, we realized that a lot of the people in Egypt actually don't have home internet or ADSL. So the, the majority of the population actually depends on mobile internet at home. So this was the first indicator that internet basically is not accessible to the average Egyptian. And by time went by, we, just, we, we uncovered more information that just pointed us in the right direction. The other one was that it approximately takes 20 working hours in Egypt to be able to afford two gigabytes worth of mobile data packs. Now this is extremely significant because when you look at the numbers in Europe or the US, it takes an individual approximately, let's say between 35 to 45 minutes worth of work to be able to afford two gigabytes. So in nature, just internet wasn't accessible to the average individual and it wasn't something that they could easily access. And this is when we decided to do a very simple MVP you would say for, for Wasla. So we kept on thinking, how can we make internet more accessible? And we did a lot of research and a lot of brainstorming sessions. And then we realized that mobile browsers is something that a lot of people in Egypt don't have a major affinity to. They don't prefer different browsers. They basically use the browsers that come with their mobile phones pre-installed. Um, so we thought maybe this is an easy way to enable people to shift from the current browsers they're using to Oslo. So what we did was very simple. We basically did, we decided, you know, that we're going to invest two months of development work to come up with an MVP, test it in the market, and then see what would happen. And that's exactly what we did. We developed a very, very simple mobile browser built on top of Chromium. So we, we took the, the open source Chromium project did a few tweaks to it and implemented a gamified model where when users basically uh, engage in the platform, collect points, and then these points, basically the users could redeem for airtime. So long story short, we had a lot of challenges. We couldn't integrate with the telecom operators. We figured out a way to do so. And then we came up with a very simple platform. We went in front of one of the major universities here, major public universities, and we simply had t-shirts that said, do you want free mobile internet? Question mark. And that was actually it. So we went, we were supposed to stay for a few hours and just to get more people to download the application, understand, you know, what's the pain points that they're facing. And if this is something they will actually use. Instead of staying for hours, we ended up staying 30 minutes. There were so many people coming around us that actually police came by and they were like, what the hell are you selling? <laughs> What are you doing? You can't, you can't stay here. Do you have any paper, paperwork to show that you can actually, this, this platform is, is legal. So this is when we went back and we we're like, we definitely have something that people need and want. And this is when we started building Waslan in, in a more robust and professional way later on. Maybe you can describe first in more detail, like what exactly is Wasla browser today? Sure. So, and apologies for not explaining that beforehand. But uh, very simply, our goal as a, as a company is to provide 500 million people across emerging markets with subsidized mobile internet. And while we do that, we, we believe that tapping into 
the unbanked and uh, people that don't have access to digital financial services is a great way to complement the platform. So very simply, Wasla is a web browser that gives users access to the internet. On one end, it's tied to digital, uh, digital advertising platforms such as uh, Google Ad Manager and a few platforms that we have integrated with. On top of that, we've built a pointing system where simply a user would open Wasla, go to our website, he served an ad, the system identifies that user X has seen an ad and therefore we give users point. That's the simple explanation of the platform. So the more you stay on Wasla, the more you engage in the platform, the more points you collect. And then once you redeem, once you reach a redeemable tier within the, the points that we have, you could then redeem these points for airtime from any of the telecom operators right now in Egypt. Sorry, so the actual experience is still a browser that someone will open and then they're shown an ad. Can they choose to see more ads to get more points? No, so we don't, so the way we make money from simply serving people with ads, okay? Like how Facebook makes money and like a lot of the um, online platforms make money. Mm. And the way we reward the users is through engagement. So I don't tell the user, you have to see this ad to get points. I just tell this user, use the platform. And while you are using the platform, you're going to get points dispersed to your, uh, to your bank account, basically, to your wallet. And this is how we, we've been able to do it. So a typical user flow would be someone would open the platform, who would land on a homepage. A homepage has a selection of his most visited websites and content. So we aggregate content from a lot of the Arabic platforms across the region. And we use a recommendation engine to basically personalize and recommend content for each user. So the content that you see is different than the content that I see. And, based on and what so they browse using your browser. Based on what they browse, based on the interest that they choose once they, they register, based on a lot of other data points that you collect. Got it. So you engage, you get click points, and then you can redeem these points for it. We've seen incremental increase in, in, in adoption of the platform. So when we first launched the, the MVP, and trust me, it was, I wouldn't use it. It was so buggy. People, it was crushing all the time. It was lagging. It was, it, was, it was a horrible experience. But people were using it. People were downloading the platform. And initially, we had, we had basically a, a plan to acquire, a very, a very moderate plan to acquire around 10,000 users over, uh, over a six-month timeline just to test the platform collect feedback, and then iterate it so we can build something that is scalable. We achieved that number without spending one single dollar in two weeks, simply by word of mouth. Wow. So then we started to see a lot of traffic. Once we launched the first time, people were spending around 14 minutes a day on the platform, average. Right now, we're seeing people spend around 45 minutes. So the number has been increasing dramatically. Right now, we're closing in around 200,000 downloads, all organic, without any, any paid advertising. And we've been investing a lot of time over the past few months in the analytics layer, in the performance and the scalability of the platform, so that we could basically scale it out across the whole, uh, the whole nation. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So you get paid by the advertisers for running these ads in front of these people. You use part of that to actually pay their internet bills. And then you, that's how you make money as well. And then you mentioned how you wanted to complement this with the unbanked in emerging markets. Is your plan also to use similar points so that they can purchase other things on the internet? 
Exactly. So, so I mentioned that we've been investing a lot of time in analytics. And one thing we've, and right now I'm very proud to say that we have really a very impressive analytics layer and we're collecting a lot of information to understand the behaviors of our users in terms of their interests and in terms of how they interact with our platform. And one major takeaway was, uh, or actually two major takeaways were, the first thing is that a lot of the users on the platform right now are individuals that don't have bank accounts. They're unbanked. They're the average Egyptian individual. And a lot of them have never done a transaction online. They've never purchased something online because they don't have the tools to do so. Okay. So based on analytics we've been gathering, we discovered that these individuals have actually been transacting on Wasla, uh, on Wasla multiple times a week by simply redeeming these points for airtime, something that they actually understand. So the plan in the future is to enable these individuals to add money to their wallets and use these wallets as they engage on any platform that they are online. So think of it as having a very powerful wallet tailored for the on-bank people where any individual could cash in money without uh, going through any of the banks. And on the other side, you've got the browser. So two of them are very powerful tools. A browser is a tool to access the internet and the wallet is a tool to transact. So once you marry these two together, you then have something that is very unique and solves a lot of pain points the region is actually going through. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And as that well. is the plan for that's the plan for Wasla 2.0, definitely. Yeah. And then you were I think when I was in Egypt and we were having dinner, you were telling me that when people go and deposit money, you were going to try to use those little news stalls. <laughs> what were they called in Egypt? Kiosks, kushk. Right. Kushks. <laughs> Um, Yeah. So for them, because there's just so many of them to allow people to deposit money. Yeah. So actually one thing that is very interesting for us is we've been very fortunate in um, raising money. It was very easy for us. Um, And so we had the, the, we were very smart about who we chose to raise money from. And so I I was saying previously that we had the challenge uh, with integrating with the telecom operators to enable our users to redeem these points for, for airtime. And one way we decided to, to figure this out was instead of partnering with these telecom providers, we ended up um, in, in partnering up with the largest e-payment platforms in, in the region. And these e-payment platforms have hundreds of thousands of POSs scattered across these kiosks. One of our major investors actually is the second largest e-payment platform in the region, sorry, in Egypt. And they have access to around 150,000 POS locations scattered across Egypt. So the plan with the wallet is to tap into that network and enable people, current WASLA users and future WASLA users to cash in through these locations. Interesting, yeah. I actually so this is see one a of very... the ways we're trying to solve for the issues. Yeah, very similar model actually in Kenya with M-Pesa as well, while well, using M-Pesa, like the agency exactly. model. Yeah, for all the listeners here, I'll probably interview someone from Kenya soon. But let's go back into how you were raising money. I know in the Middle East, North Africa region, a lot of money comes from Dubai and UAE. Is that true? Can you talk more about your journey of why you decided to leave San Diego? You said that you went to school there and then go to Dubai of all the places in the region and then go from Dubai to Egypt, back to where you're from, I assume. I knew very early that Egypt was a gold mine for entrepreneurship. 
there's so many challenges here in Egypt and a lot of people can agree with me in Africa in general, there's a lot of issues ranging from finance to, uh, to transportation. Basically the infrastructure for all of these major verticals don't exist. And the current models that exist are extremely inefficient. So I knew early on that problems are great for entrepreneurs because we try to solve problems all the time. And timing was great as well because you know, technology simplifies a lot, of, a lot of the problems that you could try to solve. And if you look at Egypt right now and the region, if you track the investment, uh, investment happening and the amount of, uh, of tech startups growing out of this region, you will see probably a tenfold increase over the past five years. It's incredible. Back to your question about raising money. Definitely Dubai and, and Saudi Arabia have a lot of the, uh, the wealth when it comes to uh, you know, investing in, in, in basically uh, projects. But I'm happy to say that in Egypt, I've seen since I've, uh, since I've come back, I've seen a lot, a lot of initiatives to help promote uh, local entrepreneurship from government initiatives, actually, to VCs. VCs probably didn't exist five years ago in Egypt, tech VCs, namely. Now, there's a lot of VCs re, uh, raising um, interesting rounds, investing in very interesting technology companies in Egypt, powered by very competent entrepreneurs. One of them is Swivel. Swivel decided to you know, create bus transportation across Egypt. They did so well uh, that Karim invested in them and then decided to, to pull out and do their own version of Swivel, and that is Karim Bus. And then you would look at Uber and Uber bus as well launched the same thing. But the first person to actually enter that space was an Egyptian company called Swivel. So the interest in industry is definitely evolving into something very interesting. And, and I'm seeing that the next 10 years are going to be the renaissance for, for technology in, uh, in the Middle East. Definitely. What, what is the background of these VCs and these entrepreneurs who are leading this charge to make Egypt and Cairo like a startup ecosystem? A lot of them are individuals that studied abroad, individuals, individuals that lived and worked abroad. Some of them come from finance backgrounds and, and others come from tech backgrounds. And a lot of the successful VCs that we see right now are, are a mix of both, a mix of people with a finance and tech background, a lot of them living abroad. So they had that experience of seeing VC growth and investments in, in tech startups and replicating that, that model uh, in Egypt as well. Yeah, I've seen Swivel. I've tried it actually in Kenya when it first expanded there. I think it ran into some troubles in terms of Kenya's transportation laws and being able to approve those mini buses. Unfortunately, I didn't get to try it in Egypt, but I also avoided the subway or metro at all costs. I just Ubered around or careened around. <laughs> Speaking of transportation startups, there are a lot of logistics in transportation startups coming from Egypt, actually mostly in that field. And you did mention that government is trying to support. When I was there, we talked a bit about government bureaucracy in the tech space, as well as entrepreneurship space. In terms of general challenges, are there specific industries that you see? Because I did see that transportation is where a lot of Egyptian startups are coming out with high valuations and trying to expand to the rest of the Middle East and Africa. Are there specific fields that tend to do well with Egypt based on the support and the environment there? Or, and then are there some other areas that are not so great? Definitely. Look, there's, I like to look at it in, in two directions. The first direction is 
there's a lot of industries in Egypt that tech could solve easily. And this is the gold mine for entrepreneurs. And um, by nature, young tech savvy entrepreneurs are more competent than a lot of large organizations and more fluid in, in, in moving and, and fixing and solving these issues. But when you look at the wider, wider uh, businesses that basically um, you know, employ thousands of people right now, and this is the very difficult industry that you can compete. It's nearly impossible actually to compete in these industries if, if you're going against a, a company or an industry that is mainly backed by the, gov the government. This is near, nearly impossible because they have cheaper labor, they don't own land, uh, sorry, they don't pay for the land, and it's just nearly impossible to compete on that front. But when you look at tech, tech is completely different. Tech dem democratizes everything. So it's, it's, it's very easy for a small team of five to compete with a, large, with a large company if they're competent enough. And this is when, and you could see it with industries such as transportation, such as communication, and the likes of Swivel in the market. So there's another company called um, Trilla, which is basically a logistics. Logistics is huge here in Egypt. And these guys were Y Combinator graduates. Uh, one of them actually is a good friend of mine. They're doing a great job in Egypt and uh, they're not a, a, a massive, uh, massive team, but they're tackling a massive problem. So it's um, these type of industries that could be penetrated by tech are the ones that are most vulnerable, definitely. Awesome. And something else that I found really interesting when I was visiting Egypt was the size of the unofficial economy where, as you mentioned, it's still quite cash heavy in the people, the majority of citizens are still living below the poverty line and therefore in a very cash heavy society. Can you talk more about what's being done in this space, how that affects your startup, all the startups around it? Definitely, you know, Egypt is a very cash heavy industry. And when you look at uh, international companies who first launched in Egypt, such as uh, Uber, the reason they were successful in Egypt when they first launched here was because they, they enabled cash, uh, you know, cash payment with, with the drivers. And the reason they, they implemented that was it was nearly impossible for them to actually operate on their, their regular payment, uh, payment structure like they were doing elsewhere. And this is simply because Banks, it's very difficult to open a bank account. It's very difficult to be online. It's expensive. Banks require a lot of paperwork, but people are unable to, to, get, uh, to get these paperwork because the informal economy is massive. You know, people could work for, for jobs here. Uh, one of them is official, the rest aren't. So this gives you an idea about the size of the economy. All right. And this is... If this is how Wassel is looking, is looking at, at, at that problem as a way to, to, to take advantage of it in a positive way, right? If you look at the e-payments company that currently exists in the market, a lot of them have wallets and you're talking about, you're talking about e-payment companies that process millions of transactions a day. If you look at their mobile wallets, they're nearly non-existent. They don't have major downloads. They don't have major users. The platforms are extremely buggy. The performance are very bad. And the reason why these huge companies that process millions of transactions a day didn't focus on, on uh, their mobile wallets, and that's a good indicator, by the way, is that still people are 
depending on cash heavy uh, transactions so there's so that's a, why you see thousands go ahead a, a low number of wallets so there's yeah i understand there's not a lot of people that are using it so how are they still processing millions of transactions is that just within egypt or elsewhere as well the companies the, that came in they're pro they're processing millions of transactions through their POS locations. So as I mentioned previously, a lot of these people have, you know, right now there is around 500 to 600,000 kiosks or street vendors scattered across Egypt. E-payment companies are actually using those networks for e-payment for people to go and to, to enable uh, an individual to to basically pay electricity or pay any of these bills through the that network of uh, of vendors. I see. It's not so through a wallet. Through cash, like millions of transactions recorded cash. through cash. Okay, got it. Exactly. I forgot what my question was. <laughs> oh, unofficial economy, <laughs> right? Um, and like, <laughs> what do you think are some benefits that the startup ecosystem can experience if more of this economy was made? officialized and more trackable and people actually pay their taxes based on how much they made what opportunities do you think that opens up look it opens for a major major revolution in the digital economy in egypt in transactions when you find that the majority of people in egypt are not transacting online this is this is alarming mm -hmm. right but then when you have tools to make it easier for the unbanked people to start transacting online this is when you see major major progress in the, in the egyptian economy if you think about it you know a lot of people that that live uh, in the city right now live to send money to their parents that live on in, in rural areas once you unlock payment options for them to send money back to their families it becomes more interesting yeah so instead um, of giving your cousin like a stack of cash <laughs> taking it back home exactly and one company that was actually that did a great job in solving this issue and they're flying with it is Vodafone. Vodafone has, has, has a solution called Vodafone Cash, yeah. which is basically, it enables anyone to, uh, to through, through direct carrier billing to actually send money to his, his, his family that lives in the rural areas. And they, they did a great job at making this accessible to the majority of the people. But still, the, the, there's 100 plus million people in Egypt there's room for other platforms to exist that solve these problems. And you could see how technology has been affecting a lot of them. Uh, and I, I believe, you know, transportation was a, a great example of how technology solved that. And over the next two to three years, you're going to see how technology is going to solve the fintech industry. The government actually just has been pushing a lot in terms of enabling uh, online payments and QR codes and, and taking this, this, this model that happened in China and trying to replicate that in Egypt. Because they know that as long as the informal economy, you cannot track the payments that are happening within the, 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 the industry, you cannot, track, you, know, you cannot track how much money actually exists inside the country. It's nearly impossible. Mm -hmm. And that also raises the question where you look at money laundering, you look at terrorism and all of these, these things. But once you start pushing for, or once there's an initiative to push for online, uh, uh, online payments and a very transparent digital economy, this is when you see the, the country flourishing in that direction and money laundry and all of the other uh, challenges that we're facing in the country being reduced. For sure. It also opens up a lot more space for e-commerce and 
will increase more Definitely. jobs and online services, et cetera. So right now you mentioned that Egypt's also on lockdown because of coronavirus. Have you seen a surge of online activity and <laughs> you know, online payments? Like how do people get groceries and their essentials right now? Look, people still go down to get their groceries, but you, if you look at the numbers, you're going to see that people are spending more time online. Uh, when I look at, uh, at Wasla, actually, and the numbers over the past few, few days, we've been acquiring users in extremely fast pace without creating any, any major campaigns. And also the government actually just launched, the IT department of the government just launched an initiative to let internet become a bit more cheap because everyone's staying home. So you see a lot of people spending time online. We're having this conversation conversation on Zoom. I'm spending a lot of time on Zoom uh, with with my team. So if you look at at the effect of actually the the online uh, economy overall, you will see that it's actually during the time of Corona, there's some industries that are getting affected in a good way. Yeah, for sure. Online learning. And communications. Yeah, exactly. From like your data and Wasla browser, is there anything that you can share about like interesting trends that's happening in Egypt right now? Like what are people caring about in Egypt that you don't think is, because I'm sure you have friends in North America, in Europe, in Dubai. <laughs> what is special about usage and online behavior specifically to Egyptians? It's a very interesting question. And we've been trying to, uh, to understand that question for, uh, for quite a long time. But I would say that uh, one major takeaway is that people are actually moving away from searching and more to discovering content. Content is major in Egypt. Then if you look at the overall generation uh, gap, you'll you'll find that the majority are under the age of 35. And my first experience with internet was search. You know, you, you, I didn't, I, I started using social media a few years back, but essentially my first interaction with the internet was through search. You went online, you searched something, you found that something and, and that was it. But right now you, you find that because of the young generation, Egyptians are not searching like you would think they do. They're more on discovering. And that's why platforms such as TikTok has been growing like crazy in Egypt. And essentially, the backbone of TikTok is just discovering, right? You discover content that is relevant to you, and that's how it is. So this is how Egyptians right now are engaging with the online sources. So entertainment here is massive. Short-form video is growing like crazy. The younger generation are watching more video content that is shorter in, in time span, ranging from everything from beauty all the way down to, to sports and to e-learning. These are very interesting times, definitely. Yeah, for sure. I worked for an e-commerce platform in the U.S. Wish that was fully discovery. It was one of the first social commerce platforms in North America. And yeah, Mm -hmm. TikTok is everywhere. I actually just played a lot with TikTok today. (laughs) There's a lot of trending challenges that you can do at home because everyone's exactly. working from home right now. It's hilarious. And my fiance exactly. and I were trying one. I'll send you a video. It's like <laughs> a guy standing here. We might cut this part out, but basically a guy standing in like a tree position and the girl climbs like around him and like underneath. Oh, <laughs> it's ridiculous. We succeeded once, but didn't get yeah. it on video. So we're going to go do that later tonight. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, actually, my whole family, the same thing. They were never using TikTok. 
right now because everyone is staying home and everyone mm. is just going insane from from not interacting with anyone. So just uh, they try to buy time and just uh, explore other platforms. And TikTok has been right, definitely in that time. I've I've been actually been spending more time on TikTok than I've ever have yeah. in the past uh, few months. Before it was just Gen Z, and then this quarantine coronavirus happens, and I think now the twenty-somethings exactly. are on it, or like early thirties, and then eventually it's gonna it's already starting to move up in age. And we're actually starting to see Egyptian actors going on the platform. So this was very smart because that definitely pulled the second wave of users to the platform, for sure. I went to Egypt actually assuming that I was getting into Africa light. <laughs> like, I didn't know what all of Africa would see, appear to be at all. I know nothing. And it wasn't until that I arrived in Egypt, I was like, wow, everyone's Arabic. <laughs> and it's very Muslim. It's definitely more part of the Middle East than Africa. But it does hold like this unique position where Swivel, for example, expanded primarily into Africa first. We see a lot of startups going to Middle East. What, this is like kind of a vague question, but like what is Egypt's identity amongst its Middle Eastern neighbors and its African neighbors? Good question. It's actually in both geographically and I think ideologically, I think it's in the middle. We're considered part of the Middle East and we're also considered part of Africa. But I would say we're more leaning towards the Middle East part because simply because of the religion and the language, that, the common language that we speak. But I think the position of Egypt is geographically very interesting because it's definitely easier for Egyptian companies to expand across African markets and across Middle Eastern markets as well. The position in Egypt is, is very unique. I'm, I'm sure when you came here, you saw a major difference between how Egypt is compared to other Middle Eastern countries and how Egypt uh, is different to other African countries. So it's, it's, um, I think it's very unique. We're a huge population. And I couldn't, I couldn't explain how unique the country is because I think it doesn't... I wouldn't say it's part of the Middle East, because it's, it's just quite unique. You see a lot of Egyptians actually that work in, in other Middle Eastern countries. And when you look at the people, the Egyptians living abroad, you, you wouldn't find major numbers going African markets, right? Because Egyptians don't speak multiple languages and they're actually quite religious. So when you look at the wider market, a lot of them, when they end up looking to work abroad, they end up working uh, in countries such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And if you look at the remittance number worldwide, you will find that Egypt actually has one of the largest remittance transactions happening globally, probably top 10. And that's because a lot of the population works outside, outside of Egypt because there's not a lot of work happening here. Over the past few years, what's something that I observed is how technology is opening the doors between Egypt and Africa. If I look 10 years back, I wouldn't see in the news a lot of Egyptian companies launching in African markets. But over the past few years, you end up seeing how Egyptian startups identifying the opportunity in Africa compared to the opportunity in the Middle East and deciding to choose Africa over uh, Middle Eastern markets. Even though Saudi Arabia is a major, major market, but Africa in general has a lot of potential in terms of the next wave of internet yeah. users. For sure. I think there's a lot of similarities, as you mentioned, both culturally, socially, um, between Egypt and the rest of the Middle East. I also see a lot of um, countries where there's a lot more conflict 
with people immigrating into Cairo before opportunities themselves because Cairo is just a mass. I believe it was 16 or 20 million people just within Cairo, which is 22, 23 million people, 22, 23 million people. That is one of the largest cities in the world and actually a majority of Egypt's population, right? Everyone lives around the Nile and Cairo is in the place that everyone goes. I travel down the Nile to Luxor to see the pyramids and etc. And it's just so different from Cairo. I feel like I traveled back like 50 years when I went to Luxor and like a lot of different cities that were more south in Egypt. And then I also think that Egyptians definitely see a lot more opportunity amongst the more up-and-coming markets amongst Africa because Cairo is more ahead than a lot of places in Africa. Egypt might be more uh, more developed than a lot of the African countries, but it's not more developed than the other Middle Eastern countries. So we're kind of in the middle. And if you look at the problems we're facing here, you would find you could replicate the problems here in other African markets compared to other Middle Eastern markets like transportation issues internet connectivity issues. Dubai is a Middle Eastern market, but it has one of the largest internet penetration penetrations in the world. But if you look at Egypt and other African markets, we actually relate more with these African markets. So it, it just seems a bit more natural when, when Egyptian companies try to expand that solve these major issues that we're having here, issues that relate to infrastructure and major industries. You see these companies trying to divert from the Middle East down to the African markets. Mm. Uh, then, Saudi Arabia is a massive... Go ahead. Sorry, you said infrastructure and et cetera. It draws more similarities from Africa. But when it comes to entertainment, like Egyptian cinema, for example, is what everyone in the Middle East watches as well. So it depends on the industry, right? Exactly. It's very unique. Like uh, uh, It's exactly the relationship that Hollywood has with a with, uh, wider world in terms of English entertainment. Same thing with, with Egypt. Egypt is the Hollywood of the Middle East, definitely. Yeah. Saudi Arabia, Dubai, sorry, UAE, Qatar, all these, these Arabic-speaking countries look at Egypt for entertainment. But when you look at other industries, definitely not. Yeah. Okay, one last question, and this is um, just final. I ask everyone this at the end of the interview, or I'm going to start to. What opportunities do you see in the world it can be Egypt-focused that you think more people should be taking advantage of right now. Similar, similar countries to Egypt, emerging, emerging economies or more developed countries? It's just like what you're working on, like what is a trend or a vision that you have that you think too few people see that is clearly the future? I think fintech is very, very interesting. It's on tap. It unlocks, it has a, a huge ripple effect on other industries. So I think solving for the major, major and many problems within fintech in emerging economies will have a ripple effect on other industries, from transportation as well to, uh, to e-commerce. I think there's a huge gap in the e-commerce market in emerging markets. Still, a lot of, a lot of uh, merchants aren't going online because the tools that enable other people to transact online don't exist. I think... A lot of emerging countries are going to leapfrog from the current uh, existing banking system into something that caters more to the wider unbanked population. So I think this is very, very interesting. And you see governments trying to push in that direction because it solves pain points for everyone. So I think there's major, major potential there. Healthcare is massive. I think healthcare is nearly untapped in emerging markets. Uh, if you look at the infrastructure of healthcare, it nearly doesn't exist. So I think there's a lot of potential there. These are the major things that 
I believe will definitely, we will definitely see interesting technologies happening over the next few years. Cool. Yeah. I think in China, which was one of the leading, they're not even emerging anymore, but what a lot of emerging markets might look for, for inspiration, might look towards for inspiration, really became the giant that it is today because of WeChat, because of Tencent, because of Alibaba, and that's all e-commerce and transactional focus. So that is definitely something exactly. to look towards. It's simply because the internet won't exist without the people accessing it. You need people to be able to afford the internet, to be online, to be able to learn things online. And this is why WASLA exists, to name many of the reasons that we exist today. If you think about it, you know, education here is not, uh, is not very accessible to the majority of the population. So healthcare, education, and, uh, and fintech, these are very, very interesting industries to be in. And I think WASLA is very important and it's strategically positioned in a, in, in a location where it could have a ripple effect on all of these different industries. Because when you want to solve education, one of the ways to solve education right now is, uh, is trying to get people online, right? To be able to access the courses that, the many courses that, that currently exist online. But how do you expect people to start learning online when they can't even afford to be online, right? So once you have something like, like the platform, like the initiative that we're having at WASLA, this is something that will be, you know, will have a ripple effect on education for sure. And it will have a ripple effect on other, on other industries. So these three verticals that I mentioned, I believe over the next few years, we're going to see a lot of investments in, the, in these spaces. And we're going to see a lot of interesting use cases, definitely. Yeah, and your position in the best place possible amongst all three. I actually have. I believe so. Yes. <laughs> one more question because of this special, unique time. I'm just curious about the people living under the poverty line in Egypt because I see a lot. Of, recession is about to hit in North America. A lot of people are getting laid off, especially those that don't work white collar office jobs. And I'm sure a lot of people in Egypt don't. How are they getting supported during this time of lockdown when they can't go to work? And there's no work for them. Look, it's um, it's very difficult here in Egypt because the majority of the population lives on daily income, right? So lockdown in nature will work on a lot of people, but when it goes down to people that you know live on day-to-day -day income, it becomes very challenging. And the longer the lockdown happens the longer I think there's going to be a bit of instability uh, in, the, in, in Egypt, basically. And I think the government is doing some effort into trying to stabilize the effect of the dollar on the EGP and, and trying to make bread more accessible to the Egyptians and more affordable to the Egyptians. And you see some initiatives like the Ministry of IT, basically, of communication, sorry, going um, online and making internet more affordable. So there's a lot of initiatives happening, but... I think no matter what you do, when you have the majority of the population living under the poverty line, it becomes very difficult to try to, uh, you know, to continue with that lockdown. So I think for, for it's very important to have a solution, a vaccine in case of the corona issue as soon as possible. Because Egypt is just one of those countries, right? The majority of the world is emerging markets. So this is where you're going to find the effect of that happening across other uh, other countries. So mm. I think... Right now, we're just in the starting phase. All the news, all the issues we've been hearing online about the lockdown and the corona issue, you hear a lot of the, uh, of the problems happening in European, and more, uh, European countries and more advanced countries. But then when you see these issues being replicated in African uh, countries or emerging markets, it becomes a bit more intense. 
Yeah. Definitely. But if the people take to the streets, it's going to be much worse with the infection rates and the death rates. It's going to be. And also people are living in much close quarters based on, because I saw the slums in Egypt, they're very, very tight and close together. Slums everywhere, right? And then there's the richer area where people live in really mass houses with streets very wide and far apart. Exactly. Like I, I like to call the slums here in Egypt as chaotic neighborhoods because it's a chaos. You know, you go down there and you will find everything that you want, but it's, it's as if you're a different country but it's extremely chaotic. It's very close proximity to everyone. Everyone lives next to each other in a very uh, limited, uh, limited area. So definitely you're gonna find issues happening there in the coming in the months if this issue of the corona is not solved very soon. But then, you know, back to your point about the, the, the corona increasing in Egypt uh, dramatically over the next few months, if people, if it's not solved, I think you're right. But if you go and you present, uh, if you present the case of Corona to someone who is extremely uneducated, someone who is extremely religious and who lives on daily income, he will say, you know what, uh, I'm better off going down the street. You know, there's a gamble. The I might as well go down and try to feed my family. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And if I get anything, God is going to save me. Right. So if when you have that mentality, and the current uh, circumstances of the population, it becomes extremely, extremely dangerous uh, for everyone. Are people banned from going to the and mosques right now? Yes, they ban people from going to the mosques. They ban people from going to churches um, in Egypt. Uh, they ban, right now we actually have a lockdown between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. every day. But there's so much that the country can do and so much that the you know people can handle. I think... If this keeps on going for the next month or two months, uh, we're going to have a bigger, bigger issue at our hands. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sorry to leave this interview on such a low note with the coronavirus, but (laughs) even when this episode airs, we'll definitely find out what has happened (laughs) everywhere in the world. I never even thought about like religion and like very, very religious countries and like very, very like diverse in terms of both religion but also socioeconomic standard of living what type of effect this will have Mm. but the whole world is right now on quarantine everyone's at home it's a very interesting time i think i'm gonna start keeping up a bit more with what's happening in more emerging markets and the effect that it's going to have i think that's a topic that people here don't everyone has their own problems right (laughs) people don't really look outwards as much during this time Definitely, I agree with you. People are not looking out, and all the new, all the information that you're seeing on the news about, is about Italy and it's about the European countries and and headlines about the U.S. and so on. But where are the headlines about you know other African countries and emerging countries that are going through this uh, Corona pandemic? You know, yeah. I personally don't know, right? But I can assure you that once these uh, once the Corona pandemic reaches these countries, and I'm sure it did, it becomes very very uh, dangerous. Thank you so much for going so into detail and hopping topics with me. This was really fun. I think this will be so informational because no one (laughs) aware of my listener base and also the people in the Facebook group that you've been invited to. No one, like very few people have actually been to Egypt or the Middle East (laughs) as a whole. Maybe some people went to like Jerusalem. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'd actually love to go to Jerusalem. Once Egypt, uh, once this Corona issue actually dies out, I would love to host anyone, anyone who's interested to come to Egypt and understand more about the ecosystem. 
they're more than welcome to, to reach out.